Well, good morning. How are we on the uh, this frosty morning of week week nine? Is that you can nearly see the finish line? One last second wind, and you'll all get there. Uh, well, over the next uh, next three weeks, I believe I'll be taking us through Colossians. Uh, I've got the the pleasure of uh, teaching a an intensive on Colossians for, for MA Gold in a few months, so I'm already thinking ahead in Colossians. But, but yeah, I really love Colossians. Col- Colossians is my favourite of all of Paul's letters. I love Colossians. I'll tell you why. Because Colossians, it's like Galatians and Ephesians made a baby together. <laughs> it is. I really love it. Because, you know, Galatians got that really, that nitty-gritty uh, defence of the gospel. Okay? And, and, and then you, you've got in Ephesians this majestic view of Christ and the church. And, and you put them both together. You get basically... Colossians, where Paul contends for the supremacy of Christ, but he does that with this wonderful vision of the church together as well. And there's so much into Colossians to like. Uh, for, I mean, chapter 1, verse 28, has got that, that very important verse. You know, it's like a, a mission statement for any church. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think for a while our, um, our sort of ordinations office in the diocese was called the 128 Network, the way they're recruiting. I mean, do they still have that? Do they still have that? Is it still called 128? No. No, it's still called something else. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a good idea while it lasted. It was a good idea while it lasted. Uh, and then in, in the early parts of chapter 2, Paul forgives another wonderful statement. You know, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now that's a great pastoral purpose, to, to take the men and women entrusted to your care and give them the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is none other than Christ himself. Now, and Paul wants to do that because the, the Colossians are in a context where there are a number of competing ideas. They're still very new Christians. They've, they've come out more or less out of paganism. And when people convert from one religion to another, normally they don't get the whole thing immediately. It can take months, years, sometimes even a whole lifetime to change the worldview because the danger is they just splice something new onto an existing framework. And Jesus Christ could just be just another one of the gods they're adding to their own personal pantheon. And Paul is writing to the Colossians from prison. I, th- I, think, I think he's in Ephesus. I think he's in Ephesus. And he did not plant this congregation himself. It was planted by one of his co-workers, Epaphras, who's gone into the Lycus Valley, into the sort of, you know, triangular area of, of small cities and planted a church there. But Epaphras has come back and he's left his young rector, dare we say, Archippus, in charge. And Archippus has got another problems, a number of problems he's got to deal with. First of all, we've got this pastoral situation of Onesimus, who's run away or absconded from his slave master Philemon. That's one hairy issue. But it also seems as if some, some teachers, some, something Paul calls a philosophy, has entered into the town of, of Colossia and, and, and Herapolis and, and the Lycus Valley. And this is basically 
commending Judaism in the language of Hellenistic philosophy. Or it's basically some sort of form of Jewish mysticism that you really need to have visions of angels in worship and you need this sort of ascetic religious practices. That's how you get close to God. And then they're not denying that Jesus is 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 majestic and transcendent, but he just seems to be one of many powers. And against all that, Paul has this vision of the unparalleled supremacy of Christ. And in Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is where he unpacks that. This, this is a poem, it's a, it's a piece of prose. He's either inherited himself or written it. And it is one of the summits of the New Testament. There are a number of pa- pa- uh, places in the New Testament you can go to to get this you know, incredible vision of the identity of Jesus, his person and work. You, you can think of the prologue of John's Gospel or the Christ hymn of Philippians. But another one of those places is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And, and Paul's got, got a couple of things he wants to say. First of all, he argues that Christ is supreme over creation. We see that in verses 15 to 17. He says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now this language of imaging, uh, it's not an actual thing, it's not a, it's not a quality, it's, it's not something of content, it's more of a, more of a status, more of a title. Uh, you know, to be in the image of God meant that you, you were sort of ruling on behalf of the gods. It means you represent and reveal something about God. And that's what Christ does. He makes the invisible God visible to us. In addition to that, Paul calls him the firstborn over all creation. Now you might be thinking, firstborn over creation? Oh my gosh. Does that mean the Jehovah's Witnesses are right? Jesus is a created being? He was made? Was Arius right to sing that favorite song, his favorite song? There was a time when he was not so Athanasius can go and eat my snot. Or, or whatever it was that he sang. Does this mean Christ is a created being? No, I, I don't think that is what it's talking about. To be the firstborn, it's, it's a status of preeminence. That's what Paul's talking. It's a status of preeminence. Israel is called God's firstborn son. The the Davidic king in the Psalms can be called God's firstborn son. To say that Christ is the firstborn of creation is not to say that he is the first created being within creation, but that he has preeminence over creation. And we, we, have, we have further proof of that by some of the other things that Paul is going to say. He is before all things. He is created through all things. And the fullness of divinity dwelled in him. And what Paul goes on to say is that Christ is the creator. All things, physical, cosmic, spiritual, quantum, whatever you want to call them, dark matter, alive matter, doesn't matter. He made it all. <laughs> It's created by him and through him. While we attribute creation to the Father in the creed, we recognize that Son and Spirit 
are the instruments through which God made the universe. Or as Irenaeus put it, son and spirit are the hands that the Father used in forming and fashioning the world. It means he is the creator, the instrument through which the triune God created the world from nothing. So he's not simply a buffed up super angel. He's not one of the powers. He's not one of the emanations from some cosmic thing called a pleroma. He is none other than the God of creation and the God of redemption, as we'll see. And Paul adds that Christ is what is the one who holds all things together. He's the reason why the universe is rationally intelligible. Why we have a cosmos rather than simply a chaos. The great British physicist Stephen Hawking has based his career on looking for a theory of everything. Something that explains the laws of physics, the universe, its origins, its, its nature, the material of the universe. Well, I want to nominate myself for a prize in science because I think I know the theory of everything. The answer is Jesus Christ. He is the one in whom the galaxy is held together and united. But Paul, and but Paul continues, he keeps talking more about Christ as creator. Not only is he the instrument of creation, not only is he the cosmic glue of creation, but Paul adds in verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 16, that all things have been created for him. Now, this is unique. There are a number of statements in the New Testament where they talk about God the Father creating things in Christ or through Christ. This is the one place in the New Testament where Paul can say all things were created for him. That means the universe was put together for his, his purpose, his pleasure, his majesty, his glory. Jesus' jurisdiction encompasses every realm, every sphere, every bastion, every border, every dimension of reality, every conceivable domain we can think of, it was created for him. If we put this in the grand scheme of things, it means God's purpose was always to unite himself with creation through the Son. The world was made, the elect were called to create a bride for the Son. God's purpose in fashioning the universe was, to use the language of Ephesians, which is kind of like the half-brother of Colossians, no, sorry, the mum or the dad, one of those. Um, the purpose was to sum up all things in Christ. Okay? That's, that's an important statement. It, 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 the universe was made to magnify Christ, so that God's love and holiness and glory would be seen in the incarnate Logos' work of reconciling the universe to himself, so the finite, the mortal, would have union with that which is divine and glorious. And that means that Jesus has a sovereignty over the universe without limit. The famous Dutch President, theologian, Abraham Kuyper said this. When Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father, then he sees the great galaxies whirling in space and planets and people upon this planet and all the minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives. 
There is nothing that he sees anywhere of which he cannot say, Mine. Christ is supreme, and he is supreme over creation. Then in verses 18 to 20, Paul tells us that Christ is supreme over the new creation. He starts off by saying that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And that's true, you know, in 1376, a year you're all intimately familiar with, I'm sure, John Wycliffe, a lecturer at Oxford University, wrote a controversial work entitled Of Civil Dominion. There he audaciously asserted that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope. Wycliffe's views were condemned, he was sent into exile, but he was right. Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. We are the people who make that body. And this people is part of the new creation that has been inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ. And that's why Paul adds that Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first son of the resurrection. The beginning of, of a new glorified humanity. And in many ways, it, it, it's, it's prototypical. You see, in the same way that God raised up his son, is the same way in which the Spirit will also raise us up. But it also points ahead to the future. You see, most of the Jews in the first century, or the ones that believed in resurrection like the Pharisees, they, they believed that resurrection was what God would do for all people, or at least the righteous, at the end of history. But God had now done it for one man in the middle of history, which meant that the end had been brought forward. The future had invaded the present, the eschaton, the life of heaven. All that had arrived in the here and now through Jesus' resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. And that means that God's plan is not merely to, to fix or to mend the current creation and its brokenness and its corruption. He wants to inaugurate the new creation in and through Jesus Christ until the time when it is fully consummated with the new heavens and a new earth. And it is over this church, this, this new creation people, this renewed humanity, that Jesus remains supreme and preeminent. Uh, we know he deserves it. He defeated sin and death. He's been reconcil reconciling all things by making peace through the shedding of his blood on the cross for where, from where we get atonement, justification, and redemption. Now, the Colossian cr Christians needed to hear this, and they needed to thank God before it, because they could see that in Jesus Christ, this one God, the God of heaven and earth, had revealed himself as their creator and their redeemer. He's not simply one more God to put on the pantheon. He reigns supreme over everything. He has given himself to the world in loving self-sacrifice to create out of sinful humanity a people for his own possession. With his intention of eventually bringing the entire universe into a new, a new type of order and harmony. And all this is he has, he has done through his Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect expression of God's power and love. Now I'm going to assume at this point that not much of this 
was new. Hopefully at some, at some point in your Christian life, uh, you have been told that Christ is supreme and sovereign. I, I'm, I'm going to bank on that one. I really hope you've been told that. It, it, so it may be somewhat prosaic for us. But in the, the world that Paul wrote, this was important. Because various powers, various forces, various spirits, whether individually or together, were regarded as being all-powerful. In, in the political sphere, the Romans had a particular word for this sort of authority and, and preeminence. It was octoritas, which, which meant recognition of a superlative state of power, prestige, and prominence. And in the, the political sphere, that obviously applied to the Roman emperor. He had just not gravitas, he had octoritas. But what Paul wants the Colossians to know is that Jesus has octoritas, complete preeminence in all things. And that is why he brooks no rivals, suffers no contenders, and is matchless in his majesty. Nobody is in his league. The challenge for us is how do we demonstrate Christ's supremacy in how we live? Now, let me add an important qualification. You don't make Christ supreme any more than you personally make Malcolm Turnbull Prime Minister. Christ is supreme by virtue of his identity, by virtue of what he has done in creation, in reconciliation and resurrection. But it's a matter of what that means and how it's lived out in your own daily existence. The problem is we can be tempted to compartmentalize our allegiance to King Jesus rather than making it expansive. Jesus is supreme over exactly 38% of my disposable income. Jesus is supreme over nine hours of my working week and I'm willing to give him a very significant portion of my future plans. The temptation is to be devoted to the point of convenience. So it grants much, but costs very little. The tragedy is that our faithfulness can be token rather than total. Now in some cases, we, we might think it comes down to the theme of obedience. You know, uh, obeying Jesus as Lord. And that's certainly true, but I, I think it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. It's about how do you magnify the magnificence of Jesus Christ? How do you live a Christ-centered existence? How do you make much of him? How do you show he's not just in charge, but he's wonderful and worshipable? Now that comes down to a, a choice you make on a daily basis. What you do with your time, what you do with your body, what you do with your finances, what comes out of your mouth, what you desire, what you flee from, what you're, what you're afraid of. It's in those little things we have the opportunity to pursue the preeminence of Christ. And, and there's another important thing I want to add as we reflect on the, the supremacy of Christ as Christians. We don't spend all our time doing Christian stuff. You, you may have noticed this. 
you know. Every moment of your life is not filled with doing devotional or minister, ministerial jobs. You know, or, or whatever it is. I mean, I'm assuming you, you probably still drink coffee, you poor, wretched souls. <laughs> we watch TV. We go on holidays. We, we live in many ways just like other people. We have uh, some aspects of life that are, are indeed very normal and ordinary. I mean, when you, when you go to primary, you, you, you don't fret on, oh, what would Jesus have for lunch? <laughs> if Jesus was a first century Jewish male, I guarantee you it was not the bacon sandwich. <laughs> you know, we, we don't walk around with like, you know, bracelets like, you know, um, how is Jesus supreme? These sort of, you know, tacky embellishments that we... We might be tempted to use and potentially abuse. What we need is more or less an orientation, an expectation that every aspect of our lives, from the mundane to the germane, the ordinary, every nook and cranny of our habits and the minutiae of our character, we have opportunities for showcasing the excellence of Jesus Christ. We just simply need to be conscious that all of our life is lived at the feet of the crucified and risen Lord. And we are to delight, to enjoy Him as much as He loves and enjoys us. And to think of His splendor in all that we do and say, and wherever possible, to magnify it. If we want to come up with a very simple application for what it, what it means to believe and celebrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, the Lord of new creation. And I think we have a very simple line from Oswald Chambers. And whatever we do, and whatever we say, try to give your utmost for his highest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we celebrate, we recognize, we acclaim the supremacy of your Son, who is firstborn of creation and of the new creation. And we pray to live lives worthy of his name. So we would not simply be called a Christian, but we would prove that we are one by the way we walk. And we ask, Lord, that wherever we are in labor and in leisure, that we would be conscious of the supremacy of our Lord Christ, who gave himself for us and calls us to a world without end. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <laughs>